Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ed Krasnick. My co-host, Jennifer Kalari, will be along in just a moment. I'm getting a little bit of echo. I don't know what that is, but maybe it's my own insecurities. This is the show where we talk about mental health, and we also rehearse and practice skills. Because not only is mental health a practice, but we're, we're working towards emotional fitness. We know what physical fitness is. We don't have any emotional fitness centers. We don't have the 24-hour emotional fitness center, but that's what we need. So we're going to open up a whole line of 24-hour emotional fitness centers. Wear your spandex. Do what you want to do. Be comfortable. Be happy. Be well. But let's look at how you relate to your thoughts and feelings, because that's, that's mental health, right? The choices that you make in the moment regarding whatever you're thinking and whatever you're feeling. And other than that, I have no more to say. No, okay, so today I thought that we'd talk a little bit about memory. And when I say memory, I'm not going to sing the song. I mean, I could sing the song, but I'm not going to sing it. To those of you who saw the movie Cats, you're still coming down from that high, I'm sure. (laughs) But uh, you wish you didn't have a memory if you saw. But now uh, we're going to talk about memory. And we're also going to talk about the things that are in our control and the things that are not in our control. We're going to talk to our guest in just a few minutes, who is amazing. Now, I first met our guest. She was doing a show at a great club in L.A. called The M Bar, and it was called Afterbirth. And it was stories of people and their parenting, like horror stories, crazy stories, birth stories, all kinds of things. And it was very inventive. The stories were amazing. And she's always had this unique ability to turn like life things, life issues into whole universes. And she's done it again. She started a business called Laughter on Call. And we're going to talk to her all about that. You're going to hear the story of how she came up with this because it's fascinating. And uh, we're going to talk about Alzheimer's. We're going to talk about all kinds of things. And that's Danny Klein Modisette. Danny Klein Modisette joining us in just a few minutes. Today's show is brought to you by new and improved U-Bounce. U-Bounce is the first antidepressant fabric softener. Wash those emotions right out of your hair and right out of your clothes. With U-Bounce, stay off the emotional spin cycle. U-Bounce, it's time to freshen everything up. With U-Bounce, and by the new DIY personal renovation channel featuring shows like This Old Emotion, where couples rebuild their lives based on emotions they've had since childhood. Curb Appeal, Schmerb Appeal. And by Tiny Self-Esteem Houses. People increase their self-esteem and make space for bigger lives in smaller spaces. And by Sleeping Booty. Sleeping Booty, an animated bed renovation show hosted by a woman dealing with anger issues on a wicked queen mattress. That's right. I said a wicked queen mattress. I want to bring in right now the queen of serotonin, the first lady of the limbic system, (laughs) the ninja of the neocortex, the soothsayer of serotonin, and the daughter of dopamine, Uh, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, uh, welcome aboard. Thank Um, you, Ed. Tell me something. Do you help people in your practice 
with memory? And can you redo your memories and change them to be the way that you want them to be? It's a really interesting question. Okay, so let to start, let me talk about what memory is and what it isn't. So people think that memory is like a perfect file that you just put in this little filing cabinet and then you pull it out and review it when you want to remember something. And that's not at all how memory works. Memories actually get splattered. They get disassembled and stored in multiple places in the brain. So in the visual center and the olfactory center and the auditory center, they're kind of broken up into little tiny pieces and stored all over the brain. And then when it's time to recall a memory, when you reassemble it, it's reassembled, but also infused with the feeling that you have at the time that you reassemble it. So you're sort of adding a layer of something, whatever you're experiencing at the time, which is usually fear because you're usually recalling something and you're afraid or you're upset or sad about it. And so over time, that memory gets altered. And the human memory is not all that reliable, actually. And we think that it is, and it's very hard to imagine that it's not, but it's subject to these distortions. And that's basically what PTSD is or what a phobia is. You remember something frightening. Every time you recall it, you're afraid when you remember it, and it goes back and gets reassembled with a new layer of fear added. So you're actually changing those memories. So the first part that's really important when you're thinking about memories is the idea that it's possible that you're not remembering it exactly the way that you think you're remembering it. And that's a hard thing. And that asks you to be sort of a witness to yourself. And I'm not saying you don't remember it at all. Just be aware that there could be some distortions, especially if it's a memory from a long time ago. Memories sort of become part of our stories. We get very attached to our stories and for good reason. But as we retell our stories, they're also altered and infused with new experiences that we have as we retell the story to other people. It's important to understand that we, we are not our stories. We are the teller of our stories. And there's a big difference. In answer to your question, can you rewrite it or can you remember it in a different way? You can do anything internally. What's really amazing about the human imagination is that you can go back, rehearse and remember things in a different way, or at least remember them the way you wish they would have been in a positive way. It's usually recommended. And then over time, what can happen is that your midbrain, the part of your brain that can't tell what's real, what's imagined, what, what's, what you want, what you wish, and what's actually happening can start to see that experience as familiar. And the subconscious mind likes things that are familiar. So in that way, you can definitely rewire your brain and alter your memories a little bit. I'm recalling all my memories from 1977. What I'm going to do is I'm going to recast it because I don't like the lead character. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go a different way if I can. Um, It's just really uh, an interesting thing that you say the assembly process. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. It's very sophisticated. I mean, it seems sophisticated, but not no, really. Not, 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 not if you think that you can just, you know, that what you're experiencing in the moment is the, is the big part of it. Like that's mm-hmm. how you're going to experience your memories. Yeah. yeah. Usually I don't put those uh, together. I was just on the phone with the IRS and I was having bar mitzvah flashbacks. <laughs> Now, why is that? I can't tell you, but it was the same level of trauma. Um, I can can tell you why. Okay. There's like an underground river of fear, right? Fearful events, alarming events get stored. They get stored in the limbic system. They get stored deep in the brain. And whenever there's anything frightening that happens, your brain also goes through the trunk and pulls out everything else that's frightening that's ever happened just to make sure you're alert and ready. 
Well, I, I'm like, a, you know, I'm like a memory pants salesman, like the guys who would have the pants in the trunk. And then they'd be, I have beautiful pants today. Who wants to buy pants? And I'm doing that with my, with my memories. But there was so much panic. But the panic was coming from, you know, just, well, it was coming from inside my head, of course. But I was trained to panic. My book is called Born to Panic. That's the name of my book. You're going to read it. But I really feel like so much of, you know, early childhood was on alert. And, and trained s- to panic. And trained to panic. And so many kids are on the panic train. We got to stop the panic train at the station. Get off the panic train. Change trains. And anxiety is contagious. Part of it is temperament and sort of how we're wired. Anxiety is absolutely necessary and everyone is anxious to a degree. But some of us come in wired for anxiety a little more. You can see that trait being passed on through families, but it's also modeled in families. Hmm. So like, I remember when I was a kid, my parents were very kind of British. This has got to be a British thing. Anytime someone knocked on the door, it was literally like, it was like, hide, hide. We all had to hide Hmm. and make no noise whatsoever and wait until the knock went away. And it was just this thing that I just thought was normal when I finally was in high school and I realized that people knock on my friend's doors and nobody panics and dives under the couch. It was a very strange concept for me, right? It was just this weird thing my family did. Now, were you in the witness protection program? (laughs) Not at all. Okay. Apparently, we acted like we were. No, it was just this thing. It was absolute, my God, there's a knock on the door, quick. And we'd like hide in different rooms. We'd make sure that no one could see that we were home. I have no idea why. And then I've since talked to other families of British origin, and that's quite normal in British households. Well, I guess it's the fear of either World War II or you might have to pull out some crumpets. Or you might have to talk to someone, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) you might have to entertain and maybe you don't want to entertain. Yeah, I mean, I can, you know, boy, the the stuff that my family did. You see, my my mother would would welcome people with a smile, and then I was always on the side where she was like a ventriloquist, and she would throw her emotions from the side, and then she would say, like, I needed this today, like I needed a hole in my head. So what do I need this for? They all fall in on me like a house of cards. They fall in on me like a house of cards. So, yeah, so it was, she was amazing. But at any rate, yeah, the bar mitzvah thing too was was it was so traumatic for me that I had produced the symptoms of appendicitis and they rushed me into the hospital the night before. And then the doctor had the infinite wisdom to say, does your son have any special event coming up? And it was like, yeah, it's his bar mitzvah. You know, and it was, it was just, it was Temple Beth doom. It was crazy. People were insane. There was so much pressure. Did you get it through was, it? Got through it. Well, I got through it, but what I put myself through, it, it was a life or death feeling and I couldn't sleep. You know, I put myself through physical symptoms and that was, you know, today you are a man. Today, it's the ritual where you're supposed to be looked at as, you know, 13. Today, you're a man. And it was today, I am an, I am an anxiety ridden man. Today, <laughs> I, I, am, I am ready for therapy, man. I'm not a happy-go-lucky Jew today. Let's bring all this together. Let's bring on our guest, and we're gonna we're gonna look into this. And really, I'm gonna test you because I'm gonna not come knock on your door, and I'm gonna see what happens. And then we're gonna redo yeah. it. We're gonna redo it. Honestly, um, I, I'll still get like a little jump, but then I realize this is it's fine. It's ridiculous. It's gonna be okay. It's a ridiculous family thing. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, your fa- it's good to know that your family has the skills where they're ready, you know, in case of an alien attack. We were ready. Absolutely. This is the family that you want. You want to model this family. You want to follow this family. Um, <laughs> so in case something comes oh, down from above, this, this is where you want to be. Our guest, this is exciting for me because I'm a fan. I've always been a fan ever since I did her show, Afterbirth. Well, she's been a writer for years a terrific writer, but now she has started this company. It's a, it's fantastic. And it's called Laughter on Call. It's a company which utilizes comedy and improvisation and professional comedians to teach people humor and to teach them techniques to use humor to deal with all kinds of things, including in the workplace, in hospitals. It's so impressive and it's so healing and so interesting. I can't wait to talk to her about it. And that's Danny Klein Modisette. Danny, if you're still there, <laughs> yes. you are still there. Have you always been somebody who's been able to laugh, like no matter what? I think I really like to break tension. I, 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 think, I guess even little, as a little person, as a little smaller, younger person, um, we moved from New York City to Connecticut and my whole family became very depressed. And I made clay puppets and told jokes at the table. And I was probably nine. Wow. I think that I, it's a function of not being comfortable with tension. Can you tell us about your relationship with your mom and how you were able to, you know, what happened with her and how you were able to create like kind of a new relationship with her as, as you learned how to deal with what she was going through? And Jennifer can speak to this as well because she also experienced this with her mom. Oh, wow. I'm sorry, Jennifer. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry too. Yeah. It's interesting though. Like I, so my mother was uh, a New Yorker through and through. She was kind of one of those quintessential New York city, capable executive kind of status money focused people. Like she looked like Leona Helmsley. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that was her look. And she did actually work for Donald Trump at one point. Um, Mm. So she was very much in that New York world and very demanding, never warm. And I say all this not to disparage her memory. If you can disparage a memory, that might not be the right word. More to set up that the transition, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Who she became at the end of her life was really very different. And in some ways a gift, which I know is a super controversial thing to say because people really, Alzheimer's is a terrible experience. In any event, just to get back to the scene of the crime, she was living in New York by herself. She was diagnosed. A friend of hers called me and said, your mother is arguing with waiters and she can't fill out a deposit slip. I think there's a problem. And I was like, well, arguing with waiters, (laughs) that sounds pretty on point. But no deposit slip. That was, she knew money. So that was the, the, the tell. Uh, my sister lives in Boston, so I, I just love your accent. Uh, that was not a Boston accent. That was like Minnesota. But in any event, my sister lives in Boston. She flew in from Boston. I flew in from L.A. And in fact, it, it was a lot of chaos going on in that apartment. And uh, we hired a bunch of people to help her. Within two weeks, she fired everybody. And then the disease progressed. At a certain point, she was not leaving the apartment. And it was like $17,000 a month to keep her there with help. I made the decision with my sister to move her to Los Angeles where I live. And I had two young children and it just seemed like 
a nicer place to be. And I found this wonderful place called Silverado Beverly Place. And it um, was wide open space and lots of joy. There were dogs and kids and it was a very joyful place. And they had a um, chandelier in the front. So it looked like an Upper East Side building. And so I brought her here and initially she was okay. And then I think she realized that she wasn't leaving and she became depressed and withdrawn and she wasn't eating. And I really, I felt so guilty about it. And I was at my dentist and, you know, because it's LA, she's like also like a life coach. (laughs) And I was like teary and she wasn't drilling and she was like, what's wrong? And I said, well, I just, you know, my mother, I moved her here and she's depressed and I just wish I could hire a comedian to cheer her up. Because I was a comedian, but I couldn't make her laugh because I was her daughter. When she saw me, she saw a daughter. This dentist said, oh, you should do that. Why don't you do that? So I said, oh, I don't know you can do that. So I did. I went home. I put up on Facebook looking for comedian interested in gerontology paid gig because I wanted people to respond. And my phone rang immediately, like within five minutes. It was a friend of mine in New York. And she said, I know a comedian in L.A. who's like wants to work with seniors. She's sitting on park benches. You should call her. So I called this woman and she came over and she did, of course, what, you know, what we actually train people to do now, you know, she got at eye level with her. She was completely honest. And she said, I know you probably don't want to talk to me. You're probably thinking, who is this schmuck just talking to me? (laughs) And there was something about the word schmuck that just, you know, lit my mother up and they both were laughing. And that's what I wanted. I was like, oh, that's what I want right there. I basically hired the woman on the spot. I was like, okay, come eight hours a week and just make her laugh. And so that's what I did. And it really changed the quality of my mother's end of life. Like she Mm -hmm. almost immediately started joining in the community more and singing and eating. And even for the time when the comedian wasn't with her, she was transforming through this kind of connection with a person. And so I wrote an article about the experience for AARP magazine. I got hundreds of responses from around the world. Please bring a comedian to Pittsburgh and London. And I'd love a comedian in Kansas. And so that was pretty much, I felt like, well, I have to do this because there's always comedians who need work. And there's an inexhaustible, unfortunately, community, a growing community of people facing Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And so that was in 2018. Yeah, it grew pretty quickly. Um, we were training people all over the world because we had a cam- we got a camera and we started training people. And, uh, and then I came up with a bunch of skills training for healthcare workers because the communities we were working in were approaching me and saying, hey, we'd love our caregivers to, to learn how to do this. And I had taught stand-up at UCLA for 10 years. So I had a syllabus. I knew that I could teach And then I had the experience of working with my mother. So I came up with a program for them. And then what happened was COVID hit. We couldn't get to our seniors. We had the camera in the office and I was like, oh, let's come up with something. Like let's, um, we can live stream. Maybe we can live stream for everybody. So the following Monday, that was March 13th. So that Monday we started a program called uh, Lunchtime Laughter. And it was 12 to 1230, Monday through Friday. It was open to the public and you could come on and laugh and be engaged. And we did it. We 
fashioned it after our live interactive improv storytelling that we were doing. So everybody was spoken to and had a chance to participate. You know, within two weeks, lots of people were showing up who had perfect cognitive ability, but were anxious and lonely and isolated and afraid. And they just felt better. And then we all felt better, like my team and myself. And I, I always say it was like that hair club for men guy who's like, he's like, I'm not just a, a, a owner, I'm a customer. And I was, that's how I, that's how we all felt. Like, we're not just doing this, like we feel better. And then simultaneously, there were all these articles coming out in the Harvard Business Review and Forbes and the Atlantic about how HR was really at a loss. Like they were dealing with thousands of depressed employees mm-hmm. and how can we get them to feel connected? We came up with more programming and kind of systematized what we were doing, created something like a happier hour. So we have a happier hour. We have laughter gym. You mentioned earlier the 24 hour emotional check-in. It's like, so we have laughter gyms. They're a half an hour. And then I do actual laughter training where I really break things down and how to improve communication using tools that comedians rely on. And that comes directly from a book that I wrote uh, called Take My Spouse, Please, which was about using laughter in long-term marriage to stay laughing and connected. I didn't know that all these worlds were going to come together, but that's basically where I am right now. I've been at a lot of the business schools teaching the MBA students like how to use laughter and bring their humanity to their work. And recently I was at Duke teaching spouses of MBA students how to stay married under crisis and crisis, you know, and under pressure. So all of these worlds now are all about creating connection through shared laughter, specifically shared laughter, not watching stand up, but actually or or watching a movie, which is fine and great and will have the physical benefits of endorphins and serotonin and all that. That's great but to actually have a human connection, which occurs when you have, when you're laughing together at something, when you create something and you have that moment together. So that's really the commitment at this point. It's so fantastic. And I I really, I've honestly believed always that comedians are the bringers of mental health skills. Mm -hmm. They are the bringers. They they are the ones to teach it Mm -hmm. and share it. And that you can learn these skills they're rehearsable. You can you can use them in your life. You can use them in the moment, but you got to use them and you got to learn how to use them. And mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. learning the flute. It's like learning anything. Mm-hmm. And so this idea, laughter, it, it unlocks everything. It's just an unlocker. Mm-hmm. It's it's like Foot Locker, but it's like an unlocker. <laughs> it's a, it's similar. The the uniforms aren't as bright, but there's such a it's such a wonderful thing. And creating and building community around that is even more. Uh, wonderful. And I feel not, it's not just for people who are isolated. Mm-hmm. It's for everybody at every time. Right. We shouldn't wait until you're sat in the house for six years. This is like today. And to bring that more into the culture is fantastic. And it's really good for comedians because comedians, speaking as one, have a tendency to be isolated. Right. And so it brings us out. So mm-hmm. you really you're you're serving everybody and the most wonderful moment is when you come alive with laughter and emotion when you can mix those things mm-hmm. you are fully alive mm-hmm. that's when people come to life and that's when they're not carrying all the crap because it's being released 
and then you can actually connect with people as as the person that you really are. Right. So, so Jennifer, mm-hmm. I'm going to let you roll because I'm sure this has piqued a lot of things in you. Oh, listen, I love all of this and and laughter and music, actually, and just the feeling of love is just universal, and we all love it. And and what happens with laughter is, that you, yes, there's endorphins, there's serotonin flowing, there's also oxytocin, which is one of the most powerful hormone slash neurotransmitters that just translate to love, to love basically and trust and compliance. And mm-hmm. it's just delicious. And I, I love this. And and so much of the mental health world is heavy and medical based mm-hmm. and pathological. And this is wrong with you and labels and to just break free and laugh, I think is astonishing. And when you were talking about your, your mom, Danny, my, my mom also loved to laugh, but she was a musician. So mm-hmm. she was a pianist. So music is where she would absolutely come to life and it just changed everything for her. So mm-hmm. I love that you're doing this and I love that you're bringing it to to the people who need it the most. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, the other thing is improv skills. That's another way that becomes accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. We all improvise in every moment. Like at life is, an, is you're improvising all the time. How are you going to improvise? Are you going to use those skills? I know you use it in your book with spouses, with mm-hmm. yes anding mm-hmm. and saying yes to life instead of no to life mm-hmm. and letting go of resistance. Also, what's right with this picture as opposed to what's wrong mm-hmm. with this picture thinking. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the theater games and some of the skills that you teach and how you use them. Well, it's definitely, you know, it's this, it's this marriage of improv skills and stand-up skills, right? So, you know, you mentioned yes and, and that was immediately put into practice with people in cognitive decline, because there's just no, uh, you're not going to win an argument. And there's no payoff to even challenging them on whatever they think is right or true in that moment. The best thing you can do is say yes they want to do something that might be harmful to redirect or to expand on what they're saying, you know, in the use of the imagination. And um, there's a wonderful book called Creative Care that was written by Anne Basting. And she talks a lot about using the imagination and, and inviting people instead of reminding them of their failure of their memory, but to invite them to use their imagination to create to create stories, to create experiences in their minds. So that's just something that comes to mind initially. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, the yes and technique, which for anyone not knowing, it's basically starting your sentences with yes and, which doesn't necessarily mean that you agree with someone. It just it just affirms that you heard them. So yeah. it's that idea of listening, yes, and have you thought about this? Or yes, and I need more information right. as opposed to yes, no, but. but, or yeah. yes, maybe, which really just does not build anything. and doesn't create anything. So yeah. That's, shuts things down. Yeah. Cause the other thing, you know, the, the, with Carol Dweck and her work on growth mindset, there's all kinds of things about the word yet. Like I, I don't know yet. it. I don't mm. know it now. I haven't learned it yet. Mm-hmm. Just that one word changes everything. It makes everything possible. But the yes and, Rick Overton always talks about living in a yes field. Hmm. And I remember Robin Williams, you know, didn't know him that well, but had a few really good conversations with him. Hmm. An amazing listener. 
Mm. Amazing listener. And when he was listening, when he was with you, he was with you. Mm-hmm. He really listened. He didn't know me that well, but he's like, what's going on? And I tell him mm-hmm. and he would listen. And that is the, that's the other skill that's very much needed in improvisation is you have to listen. Well, uh, it's needed in all communication. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I think it's chapter two in my book for marriage, like mm-hmm. listen and listening is multi-layered, right? So there's listening to the words. There's listening to someone's physicality. There's listening to tone of voice. Like it's active listening is a real engagement of self. And so that is what I teach at the business schools and in any like marriage workshops. And we actually, you know, you talked about, you know, giving people practical tools and I think acting things out is something that you guys do or role playing. Yes. Yes. And I just did that at Duke. I was like, get up, you know, and these are people who, you know, we're blessed. We come from this world of expression, but, you know, regular people, it's, it really takes a lot of courage. And that's what I, I also talk a lot about courage, about the courage to be honest. And it takes courage to listen because you might not hear what you want to hear. So that's really true in marriage. Like listening is risky. Of course, there's no other way because eventually it's going to come out. But um, and even in business, to be able to really hear someone and maybe not get the answer that you want, but maybe by saying yes and putting forth your ideas, you'll come to a meeting place, which you won't come Mm -hmm. to if you just keep throwing negativity at it. I did some work for uh, for the campaign, for the presidential campaign, like a lot of people did. And we, we had this great group that taught us empathetic listening skills. Mm. And then we had to call people in red state areas and talk to them about what they wanted in their lives. Mm-hmm. What Not about who they were voting for exactly right away, mm-hmm. But what do you want? What's your family like? What do you need? Mm. What, are you, what are you dreaming about? What are you thinking about? What about your kids? And then you listen. And so unlike trying to flip voters, what they wanted to do, that your goal was to be on the phone with them as long as you could be on mm-hmm. with them and listen to them. And I cannot express like how well this works because people are not used to being listened to. Absolutely. And that's a lot of what we do on our virtual events for companies. We always talk about, you know, we're there for the introvert. We're there for the person who this has been extremely hard for and extremely hard in a Zoom room because what happens is the four extroverts or two extroverts take over the call and the other people never get heard or seen Mm -hmm. because they can't because they just don't have the social skills. So we engage like every single person gets engagement and we give them their voice, you know, their chance to be heard. What kind of an impact does this have on your family life and on your personal life? Like how does this find its way into your own life? So I wrote the book at the 10 year mark, the take my spouse, please book the 10 year, our 10 year anniversary was terrible. We almost didn't make it to be honest. And that's when I became determined to find out how couples laugh. Like I really admired couples who could laugh together long, long term. So if like you had like gray hair and were holding hands, I was like, how do you do it? And you're laughing, right? I was like, ah, what's interesting is this month we'll be married 20 years and it is not a perfect marriage. It has not been a, a perfect journey as it were, but we do laugh together still. And I absolutely credit the research that I did for the book because I interviewed like hundreds of couples for that 
It was about remembering the tools of showing up and listening, as we just said, letting go of the moment before, like all of these tools that the element of surprise is very important long-term, right? Having patience, all of the things that I explored in that book directly affect my marriage. In terms of my children trying to say, you know, to stay present and listen to them and know your audience, you know, that's another tool, right? As we know, as comics, like know your audience. So I might want my kid to be something, but I need to know my real kid. Who's the real kid in front of me? Um, and staying current, having faith. Having faith is a big one, which I know sounds like suddenly we're in a religious terrain, but I think you have to have faith in in something bigger than the mm-hmm. moment because you know, there are very rough patches in all human intimate relationships. Being able to persevere is aided by having faith in the greater good, if that makes sense. Well, there's a basic thing in that it's going to work out. Everything is always working out. It's going to work out. Even if you don't believe it a thousand percent, you say it to yourself. You have mantras. There's all kinds of things that you can do. Like I was just, before I started talking to both of you, I was picturing the very worst thing that could happen because of an experience I had earlier, right before I started talking to you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? It's going to work out. It just will. Mm. And all of this craziness that I'm putting myself through, all of the life or death kind of thoughts that you have, the fact that I'm thinking I'm going to have to move back in with my parents and my parents have been dead for 30 years, (laughs) that's a problem. That's a logistical problem. (laughs) But all of those kind of things, that's what's making me feel the way that I'm feeling. It's not the circumstance. The circumstances are just circumstances. They're not, you know, let listen, people go through horrible, you know, they go through very difficult events and they are difficult events. But most of the stuff that you put yourself through is what you're thinking about it, not the event. Mm. So, Jennifer, could you could you speak to this a little bit in terms of sure. your... Yeah. You know, your work, because, uh, you know, the calm technique, we've talked about it before, Mm -hmm. but there's a there are steps to listening. Right. There's not just listening. There's a way of listening. Yeah, there is. And my work and and my journey with families and the coaching that I do and and working with my clients is really teaching. And empathic listening is great. I mean, there's all kinds of different listening techniques. The one that I teach is one I kind of expanded on and developed myself, which is a, it's a version of mirroring where Mm -hmm. you really just put your own agenda, your own issues aside, and you just fully immerse yourself in what you think that person's experience it is. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Danny, you were saying that it's not about Mm -hmm. agreeing. Mm -hmm. It's about getting, Mm -hmm. right? It's about really just staying where they are. And so for a lot of us in couples or as parents is we think we're better listeners than we actually are. But most of the time when you're in a in a relationship or you're in a conversation with your kids or your spouse, they're telling you what you think and you're already thinking about what you're going to say next. <laughs> right? You're already thinking of your rebuttal to that or, oh, well, that's the same as you did to me. And you're sort of constantly pulling up this evidence that supports your point of view. And it's really about suspending that and truly connecting with your eyes, using your face, your shoulders, your body to really show that person that you are present and you are just thinking about them in that moment. Not what you think that gets to come later. You, you know, what you have to say is important, but you've got to listen first. 
And then it's, you know, suspending your agenda, making sure the affect on your face looks similar, not identical, because that's weird, but certainly similar. Mm -hmm. So if they're urgent, you have to look urgent. If they're sad, you have to look sad. If they're, you know, especially if it's your kid and they're telling you something sad and you think it's cute and you have a smile on your face, that's not a neurological match. That's not going to work. And they're going to do whatever they can to convince you, no, 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 this is worse than you think. This is this is bad. I'm going to show you how. So often when we think we're de-escalating someone, we're actually escalating someone because we're trying to cheer them up or talk them out of it, make it a learning moment, which you can do later, just not at the beginning. They just need you to be there. They need you to hear them. And then the listening part, because it's called the calm technique, the listening part is paraphrasing and summarizing and clarifying, but all with genuine affect, all with genuine presence. And then when you've done all those things, you pull that together and that's the M, that's the mirroring. And it it takes a bit of practice. It's a little bit different than effective listening. In this technique, there's no observational statements. No, I understand. I'm hearing that. That must be. I find that sometimes that takes the brain out of the experience because it, it has to go through the language center of the brain first before hitting the limbic system. So it's more like just being present in in exactly where they're, what, really? And tell me more and just kind of getting into the moment with them. And it's an art, it's a skill, and it, not all of us are as good at it as we think we are, but practice and certainly with people you love, just any clumsy attempt that's genuine is better than, you know, telling them what, you know, they, you think they should be feeling, which is what we often do. Yeah, I, it's intention. And I never really, you know, I wasn't, aware of that, you know, when my daughter was little or even, you know, when I was growing up, I certainly wasn't aware. I I was somebody who's trying to fix something all the time. And a lot of people are like that. You're scared of something. So the response is the default response is I'll fix it. How do I stop it? How do I fix it? Well, that takes up a lot of energy. And that is what's draining. Parenting is not draining. Feeling like you have to control everything is draining. Right. Feeling like you have to fix everything is draining. You, you can't really control very many conditions in your life. You can control some, but for the most part, you can't control conditions, but you can control your reaction to those conditions. And the intention of connecting, like I'm going to connect with my partner. I'm going to connect with my, da- my daughter or son. Right. I'm going to connect with this person in this business that we're coaching. That intention alone, without anything else, mm-hmm. will huge. take you to a different place. That's huge. And when, when you love someone, especially with your kids, it can almost feel like, can you just feel better so I can feel better? Because this is causing me so much stress. I need you to feel better. And often the message we're sending to the person we love is, we can't, I can't handle your emotions either. <laughs> they're, they're a lot. Mm. So the person just ends up feeling that they haven't been validated. And even when you try to cheer someone up, oh, come on, let's go do this. Let's look at the bright side. If you're feeling really upset and crummy and sad about something, you don't want to be cheered up. Well, you I want someone to get you. Yeah. I mean, we talk, a, there's a lot of mirroring when you work with people in cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that first moment with that, the first comedian who was like, I know you don't want to talk to me. Like yeah. she was reading the moment. The mirroring, sure. Right. She wasn't yeah. like, oh, it's so nice. Isn't it nice here? What a bright, sunny place they found yeah. for you. There's, which, that's not a neurological match. No. Right. There's, there's, there's a, yeah, really. there's a gap there. And then the other person has to get more upset to prove that it's not such a happy place here. It's so interesting that you did that. When my, when my mom was in her long-term care facility, I did some work and we also did this at another hospital in Toronto, teaching the the staff to just use these loving statements and this connection. I love you. And just 
just actually bringing warmth to it. And boy, did it change everything. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, also you talked about, you know, just the clumsy attempt has value. And that's something that I, you know, one of the challenges in uh, visiting people with Alzheimer's and the lack of visiting that goes on Mm -hmm. because uh, Mm -hmm. my father died of cancer 25 years ago and people were reading to him from the New York Post till the day he died. And then my mother, when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's within six months, there was nobody. No visitors. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. what I discovered, part of it is that people are afraid they're not going to do it right. They yeah. they don't, it's just not going to be perfect. It's just not going to be a good, you know, and this whole idea of like, oh, imperfect is great. Like, Im- like you just yeah. showing up yep. is Absolutely. fantastic. You're already doing more than 90% of the people. Well, and what's so interesting with people, this is all people, but, but people with Alzheimer's as well, they may not remember what all the words are, or even who you are, but they can feel what's underneath the words. That part is still there. Right? Oh, so even it more feels, so. It actually becomes oh, yeah. more heightened. They're more absolutely, sensitive. absolutely. So they feel when it's genuine and they feel the laughter and they feel the love. And they, I mean, I knew my mother, my, my mother didn't know my name for years, but I knew she, I knew that she knew me mm-hmm. on some level. She knew me. Yeah, I, and I agree with yeah, that. Yeah. It's, you're right. But people get so afraid and it, and you don't know what to do. And it's also very hard and it's very sad. And yeah, you're but, right. The, the visitors just dwindle. They I know. Do. And here's the thing. Like I did get some pushback about like laughter and Alzheimer's. Ah, that's inappropriate. Like what? Blah, blah, blah. what? And, and the thing <laughs> is, because it's sad, you know, and like, it's really sad. Like we get it. I lived it. It's sad. But the point is that it's not sad every moment. Yes. And mm-hmm. so the point is you get in there and you show up. And then you can exploit, for lack of a better word, or inflate those moments that aren't sad. Like you're totally present for the giggle. And that's the goal is like to be present and be there moment to moment and capture those moments where you really can still see the sparkle. And this Mm -hmm. is like beyond language. Because we oh, do much beyond language. We yes. do a lot with dance and yep. facial, you know, again, mm-hmm. the mirroring and silly faces and silly sounds. And we get the whole room to sing because, as you said, music. I once did a Titanic Remembrance Day show at a community. Yes, mm-hmm. there is a Titanic day. Remembrance Day. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so we took them on the boat, on the ship, and then we're going to pack. What should we pack? And then we're going to do Oh, let's stop by the band. The band is still on the ship. And then what should they play? Oh, let's have them play Amazing Grace. Now, 40 people who really hadn't been talking, or like half of them were asleep. Suddenly, the whole room is singing. singing Amazing Grace. Mm. And it was so fantastic. Like, just thinking about it now, it, I'm still moved by that. And that is such a great thing because it's not it's not a resistance energy. It's a going with. Totally. And it's a celebrating. It's a and you go yeah. with. You go with. It's not like, oh, my God, she doesn't remember me. Mm-hmm. It's you find that moment. Smile. Let's make, let's make smiles back and forth. Mm-hmm. Let's do these facial things. Let's do this thing. I'm going to sing a song. I'm going to do a thing. The other thing I'd say is I interviewed a book. I think her name was Jane Heller, an author. She wrote this book about caretaking and how caretakers never take care of themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she taught these skills of like how to replenish yourself while you're doing these things for someone else. Sure. And it's very important and something I don't hear a lot about. So anyway, a lot of things 
that are important. And Danny, I want you to come back. And I, the next time you come back, we're gonna we're gonna do a few of these things. Okay. Try a couple of these things, these skills. Yeah, we talk a lot about breathing. That's a big one, conscious breathing mm-hmm. as like the first building block of self-care for caregivers. I was doing that just before I got on with you guys, but I had had like way too much coffee <laughs> and I was breathing, but I was breathing like Frank from the movie Blue Velvet. <laughs> and that's not a very good, that's not a good thing for anybody, but I loved it. I, I, I Just that like mm-hmm. actually helped me come down. Just mm-hmm. the fact that I said, you know, well, maybe you could breathe for a second. I'll do it right now. Breathe with us. You're never going to hear that on any other podcast. I promise <laughs> you. Not even Headspace will do that. Well, that's our show for today. Danny, I can't thank you enough. Thank but you, Danny. Sure. My pleasure. Danny, tell them what where they go to find out more about Laughter on Call. Oh, please go to our website, laughteroncall.com, and at all the uh, social media, at Laughter on Call. We're very easy to reach. Excellent. Congratulations on everything you're doing. It's so thank great. You. More, more, more. And and Jennifer, thank you for helping and, and for the calm technique, especially, and for all the things that you do really appreciate that. And I want everybody to subscribe and join and and listen to us wherever you get your podcasts, write us a review, uh, say hello, write to ed at makelightmedia.com. You're going to get the uh, mental health is hot potholders if you do. I promise you that. You're going to get Moodament, which is the first antidepressant mouthwash. We have all the products that you would possibly need in one place. We have it at makelightmedia.com. Thank you for listening. Take care. Take a breath sometime this week. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick. We'll see you next week.